here into the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, as we continue our series this Christmas on the divine rescue. And before we get too far into the Christmas season, I just want to make sure, are you really certain that Jesus is God? Okay? Um, I want you to know that that is a radical claim. There's some church people that think like, oh yeah, Jesus is God, and you just kind of say that, and it just kind of rolls off your tongue. You need to understand that most people can't go there, okay? If you want to say that Jesus is a good man, uh, Jesus did some good things, uh, Jesus had some good teaching, no problem. Everybody's going to be happy. We're going to go with that. But when you say that Jesus is God, that is a dividing line. And how do you know that's even true? No one's going to argue that Jesus is a man. The question is, is he really God? And that, friends, is the critical question. Is Jesus really God? If he is, it changes everything. And in order to answer that question, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. We're going to look at the events surrounding the very first Christmas, about 2,000 years ago. And we're going to encounter a man by the name of Joseph, who is in the midst of despair and broken dreams. And it's yet through a dream that God declares who Jesus really is. So let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So let's kind of back up here and look at verse 18 where it says Jesus Christ. If you remember from last week, we talked about Christ. It means anointed one. The Hebrew people referred to him as Messiah. Now, in the Jewish faith, they anointed three different people or had three different offices in which people were anointed. If you were a prophet, someone who God used to, for, to speak the words of God to people, you were a prophet You were anointed with oil and recognized as such. There was another office, the office of a priest. If you were someone who represented the people to God, you brought their sacrifices that they brought and you presented them to Yahweh, you were recognized as a priest and you were anointed with oil. There's a third category, and that was if you were a king. If you were someone who was governing, reigning, ruling over a kingdom, you were anointed with oil and you were recognized as a king. When you refer to Messiah, or your Bible might say Christ, it's referring to the one who is promised in the Old Testament who would fulfill all three of those offices at the exact same time. All of history is being focused on one individual, Messiah, a man. And beginning in verse 18, you find now the birth of Jesus Christ. The very first Christmas, it was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they had had any sexual relationship, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. We have this conception by the Holy Spirit where the eternal Son of God enters into humanity, is conceived in the womb of Mary who has never known sexually a man. How is this possible? Like, Don't think like I'm going to be able to stand up here and like explain it all to you. You need to understand that in our faith, 
In the faith of the one true God, there is mystery. God has so designed and set it up that there are some things that we will not understand this side of eternity, and it's by divine design. For instance, you and I cannot fully explain how God literally speaks creation to being. Literally, God speaks and it appears and happens. Anybody want to give that a shot and explain how that happens? Didn't think so. Okay. We can neither can we explain how God is three persons and yet one God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, and yet they are one. And we, we see it in Scripture, and there are some details given to us, but we can't fully explain that. Uh, we can't explain how fully how when someone truly trusts in Jesus, they are spiritually transformed and the Spirit of God resides in their life. We can explain it. We can give some details. We can show you Bible verses, but we can't fully explain the eternal transformation that takes place. And so it's true also with the virgin birth. This conception by the Holy Spirit where the eternal Son of God enters into humanity. It's a mystery. And you and I as believers in God, we need to be comfortable with mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God could dis- declare and disclose much more than what he does in his word. But everything that you and I need to live by faith and to walk with God, God has given us and revealed to us in his word. And so we find in the midst here of this situation, someone who's often overlooked at Christmas. And yet he's so critically important. Maybe you missed him, but did you notice his name is Joseph? We don't know a whole lot about Joseph. Matthew later in chapter 13 refers to him as a woodworker, uh, a carpenter. That means he's either a woodworker or a stonemason or perhaps both. Uh, likely was not rich, but definitely a skilled man. But do you notice also in verse 19, he is referred to as a righteous man, meaning that he truly believes in God like Abraham. He has a faith in God. That's what makes him right with God because he's in a right relationship with God. He walks with him and he seeks to obey him. You always find those things going together. If you know God, you seek to obey him. And so he was not an unrighteous guy. He wasn't a moral guy. He likely was a very respectable young man. And we find here from the text, here's a word we don't use very often, but you see it in verse 18. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, it's kind of like engagement, but there were things that were very different than how you and I customarily think of how people get married. See, there are two major parts of a Jewish marriage. The first is this betrothal part, and the betrothal has two stages. Um, Despite how we do it very differently, uh, they actually, the family members picked who their kids would marry, okay? It was a prearranged marriage and this was done when the kids were pretty young and families would get together and they would carefully prayerfully decide choose seeking god's will who is it that my my kid should marry now i've attempted to explain this to my children and saying really i really like this idea and i want to go this route i want to want to be biblical in every respect and i'm not getting any takers at this point but we've had some interesting conversations but nonetheless in the near eastern culture they initiated these arrangements and so there was this idea that there was, there was a selection that was made. But then the second stage was when the betrothal became official. It was a formal, one-year, legal, prenuptial agreement that took place before witnesses. 
And these are these this arrangement, this betrothal, often took place when they were teenagers. Mary, Joseph, it is believed to be Mary like in her early teens, Joseph maybe mid-teens. It's possible they could be in their early 20s. Joseph might be around 20, could be a little older. But it's, it's really happening in kind of their teenage years, which, by the way, I mean, think about when you were a teenager, or maybe you are one. Uh, were you making a lot of good choices? You want to make your marriage choice at age 13? Huh? That makes sense to get mom and dad involved in that decision, right? Well, that, what took place is when these families had come together in agreement, then there was this time where it became official. It was legal. In fact, once this betrothal was, was actually put into place, they were referred to as husband and wife. They didn't uh, live together. They still lived in their respective homes. Uh, they didn't have a sexual relationship, but they're referred to as husband and wife. The husband, so to speak, the, the guy who's going to marry the wife, he actually presents to the wife's parents what is called a dowry, where he would give money or gifts. Uh, in the case of like, remember like Jacob working it with uh, Laban? Uh, he actually worked it off and presented a dowry of time and service. But it was likely a financial gift given to the wife's parents. And this time, they're now referred to as husband and wife. If one of them actually, like for instance, committed adultery, had sex outside of marriage, uh, the law says that they were to be stoned to death, killed. If one of the two in this betrothal one-year period died the other was referred to as a widow or a widower. And so this is so binding. In fact, the only way that they could ever break this legal arrangement of betrothal would be through a divorce. So it's very different than our culture. But that was the first part. There was betrothal. But the second part of the wedding, uh, the marriage, was the wedding. And what would happen about a year later? And to help you understand their culture, one of the reasons why it was a year was to prove that this wife, this future spouse, was sexually pure, okay? Like no child just suddenly appeared. And purity was so very treasured and so very valued. So after about this year took place, it gave this, this young man, let's say he's 18, time to get his act together, right? Start figuring out how you're going to live and where you're going to live and how you're going to provide. And the wife, this future spouse, was also preparing herself. And about a year later... They had this situation where the groom would get all dressed up in special clothes and all of his friends as groomsmen, and they would make their appearance at his future wife's place. Now, she knew this was coming. It wasn't like she was just out there doing nothing or playing around in the garden. She knew this was coming. She was also getting ready, and then it finally happened. And he shows up with this great entourage. They pick her up, and they go back to his parents' place where a feast has been prepared, and they're getting ready for a party that could last for about a week. And so they're with this great wedding feast that they have, this was followed by blessings that were extended by the parents' to this new couple and then the father of the bride drew up a written marriage contract which was signed and then soon afterward this new couple went to a specially prepared nuptial chamber and this couple prayed together and then the marriage was consummated and this was how marriage was done and the festivities could last for a week it is in the midst of the betrothal time this one year period that we find Mary and Joseph. Do you see that in verse 18? Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. 
but a crisis is about to hit. But before they came together, before they were married and consummated their marriage, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. There was some powerful life-imparting life imparting work that the Spirit of God did to bring about the eternal Son of God to now actually be conceived and residing and growing in the womb of Mary. And Joseph, when he hears news, when Mary says, you're not going to believe this, and tells him, I can assure you, he's not going to believe it. And But yet, it's evident you need to understand a crisis that is taking place here. I mean, Joseph would certainly know about Mary's character. When you look at the Gospel of Luke, you find out that Mary is no common teenager. This woman's got a depth of theology. You see herself when the angel Gabriel appears to her, literally yielding herself to the will of God. She knows she's going to be ridiculed and mocked, but she is yielded to God himself. And if this is God's plan for me, so it be. And But for Joseph... I mean, come on now. Your future wife is telling you, hey, I'm pregnant and the spirit of God has conceived this child in me. And he's like, come on now. <laughs> that, that is outside of any paradigm of normal that I'm familiar with. It's so out of keeping with her, with Mary, her commitment to God. And for Joseph, his whole world is just being wrenched apart. Tears in his eyes. It's like, you know when you've heard news that is absolutely devastating and it literally twists your gut and you feel it in your heart and the pounding in your mind? It's as if your world is collapsing and your soul is being torn apart. That's what's taking place with Joseph. He's trying to come to terms with this depressing burden and this broken dream and this broken heart that the girl that he's going to marry is now pregnant with someone else's child and it is more than he can handle. He's shook, shook to the very core of his soul. Now, had Mary and Joseph been living in Moses' day, why, um, actually, Mary would have been immediately stoned to death and done so because it was called for in the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. The sin of adultery, how God dealt with it, you died. And it was specifically laid out how you were going to die, die death by stoning. However, because of the lackness of the Jewish theocracy and the infiltration of Roman law in Joseph's day, there were two other options. There was the first option, the one that he should likely follow, that would be expected in this completely devastating situation. And that was to make Mary a public example. So what he would do is he would charge her with adultery in a public court. She would be shamed, brought to trial, Convicted in front of everyone, and her reputation would be ruined forever. Her life would be marred significantly by this event. And that's what we expected that Joseph should do. However, there was another option that he could do. And that would be that he could quietly, before two or three witnesses, write a bill of divorce and end their relationship. To divorce her because they were legally married even though they hadn't come together. There'd be no fanfare. No one but the witnesses would have to know. Mary would be sent away someplace far, far away to bear the child and to raise the child. And you need to know something else about Joseph. He had a reason to divorce her. 
In fact, he had a reason, and it was expected that a man in this situation would make her a public example because his reputation is on the line. Everyone would assume, hey, Joseph, you're an adulterer. You got Mary pregnant before the time, right? And so his reputation is at stake for the rest of his life. And so Joseph is suffering. I mean, he loves Mary, and yet there's this premarital pregnancy, and he knows that he's not involved. And on the other hand... Uh, I mean, she's she's betrayed him. And so he doesn't know exactly what to do. It's the agony of the heart. It is ripping him apart. What should he do? If he wants to protect his integrity, you take her to court and make her a public example. You cut your losses and you do it in a legal, formal way. You can you know that dowry that you paid off uh, her parents? You get that back if you go public. On the other hand, though, uh, He loves this gal. And the last thing he'd probably want to do is run her through that kind of lifetime of humiliation. You know, when you're betrayed, it potentially brings us out the coldest and darkest part of our heart. When you were betrayed, and and I want you to know that I know that some of you, even just kind of looking around, because I know some of your stories, you have been disfigured by the the divorce or the betrayal that took place in your life. Some of you have have been disabled by just devastating words. Um, People that you counted on and they left you in a really tough spot. I was talking with one guy and he talked about how he had been betrayed by people that he really counted on. And he said, it just about killed me. And then he told me about the heart attack that he had after these situations had played out. I don't want you to think that for Joseph there just weren't any tears or a convulsing of pain. There was a loss of vitality and a loss of sleep and an anguish in his soul that he had never experienced before. Everybody perhaps thought that he should go the public route, but because this was becoming a public matter. I'll tell you this. You can tell the depth of a person's character by their response to deep hurt. You can tell the depth of a person's character by their response to deep hurt. You see, for Joseph, um, he's, he's wrestling with perhaps the biggest decision of his life. And when you, when you evaluate people when they're facing deep hurt, give them some time to land on their feet. Give them grace, but see where they land and how they behave. Take a look at Joseph. In the midst of his great distress... Look what he decides. I I, I don't want you to miss this because this is so critical to the Christmas story. Verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, do you get it why he's referred to as her husband? Being a righteous man, he lives rightly with God. He behaves rightly. And don't miss this. Not wanting to disgrace her, plan to send her away or secretly or literally to give her a certificate of divorce. You see his heart? I don't want to disgrace her. I'm I'm willing to take this all on. I I don't want to harm her. I'm going to do what is best in her interest. That speaks very highly of him. But in the midst of all this pain and this anguish and these great unknowns, Mary's story to Joseph and Joseph trying to come to terms with this, you find surrounding the birth of Jesus some key uh, facts that are given that demonstrate who Jesus really is, that he really is God. Look at verse 20. 
But when he had considered this, so you see him just wrestling with this decision. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? There was an angelic intervention. The Lord literally intervenes and he appears to Joseph in this dream. Now, Mary had no way to defend herself by even saying to others who were just slandering her and ripping her to shreds. You take that in. And when she'd, she'd actually tell her parents or tell Joseph, this child is like the angel said from the spirit of God. He, somehow God created this. In all of human history, there has never been a virgin birth or anyone conceived in this manner. And so you know what happens? The Spirit of God becomes her advocate. Notice the word behold, verse 20. It tells you that there's something highly unusual, very unique. Behold, in a dream, this angel appears and says, Joseph, son of David. There are five dreams that appear in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, all of them pointing to who Jesus is. They're showing the supernatural nature of who Jesus is. And we don't know who the angel is. Uh, perhaps it's Gabriel. I mean, Gabriel makes appearances to Mary. Uh, Gabriel makes appearance to Elizabeth, announcing the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. Gabriel is the one that appears in the book of Daniel, giving all these eschatological explanations about what is to come, about the future Messiah. But we don't know. Sometimes when you see in the Old Testament angel of the Lord, it's referring to God himself. Others, it's one of the created angels. In this case, it's a created angel. We don't know who it is. Maybe it's Gabriel. And he makes these announcements. And notice what he says. It's so very important. Joseph, son of David. By highlighting the fact that Joseph's in the line of David. Remember when we went to the genealogy last week? You see, Messiah has to come from Abraham, has to be a son of Abraham. Because God made a covenant with Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. But he also has to be a son of David. Because God made a covenant with David telling you, you will have a son that will reign forever. Joseph is in the line of David. And that is so very important so that Jesus would be in the legal line of, Jesus, of, of David. And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Fear is the enemy of faith. What God is communicating through this angel is this. God is saying to Joseph, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. Despite the social repercussions, despite the fact that you can't explain this and you don't fully understand it, I want you to trust me. He's calling Joseph to the hard road, to the difficult path. And he's He's pointing out that through this angelic intervention, what is taking place here is pointing out the identity of this child. Let me show you something else he says in verse 20. The angel reveal, reveals that this, is, this child is the result of a supernatural conception. You see that in verse 20? Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's miraculous. It's unprecedented. It is a conception made and accomplished by the Spirit of God. We're literally, take this, try to grasp this. The eternal Son of God 
actually enters into humanity, is conceived and grows within the womb of a woman who happens to be a virgin and grows. Do you know that the eternal son of God took it upon himself that he would always be in human form? And that's what the angel is declaring. This one that is in Mary's room has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And let me show you something else. Not only do we see that angels were intervening and that this angel speaks of the supernatural conception, but notice the life-saving mission that this child is to have. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he's pointing out, you, Joseph, Son of David, you're in the line of David. It so happens in the Gospel of Luke, where, where it traces Mary's lineage, that Mary is also in the bloodline of David. But clearly, the child in Mary's womb is not his own. It's very interesting. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, shows that he is of a legal lineage through Joseph. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, deny that Joseph was Jesus' physical father. And what they're showing is the supernatural nature of this child. And then he's showing the life-saving mission. See, he says, Joseph, son of David, you will have, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You see, it's, here, you need to understand something. The you there is in the second person singular. He's saying, you, Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. You see... If the father named the child, that meant that he was claiming the child as his own. That that child was a part of his family. That means that Jesus would have the legal rights of the throne of David because Joseph is to name him. You, Joseph, you singular, you name this child. He is in your family. But let, let me, did you see this? Verse 21, most of you weren't acting shocked. You should be. He said, and he will save his people from their sins. Okay, hearing that Mary's pregnant, that was shocking enough. Verse 21 is far more shocking. What? This child will save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus, Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. And his name speaks of his purpose. He is to be a savior and a deliverer. And this was promised in the Old Testament that there is one who is coming who will be savior and deliverer. And Joseph is finding out through this angel, you will call his name Jesus. And he's going to save his people, not everyone, but his people, those who are trusting in him, his people from their sins. Now, when you hear the word sin, you need to understand that it's not just the heinous things that you and I have done. Okay. You know, whether it be you're lying and stealing and cheating and all the bad words that you said and the immorality that you've experienced. No, not, not the, that's, that's certainly sin. But anytime you and I try to find our sense of purpose in life and identity and peace apart from God, all of that is sin. You and I are created for him to know him. And so he says, this one that's been promised, this one that's now residing and growing in Mary's womb, you call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. I want to tell you something that's so very important about salvation. You see, God has emancipated us 
from the greatest evil. But he's also placed, in, placed us in possession of the greatest good. God not only saves us from something, from the penalty of our sin, death, he also saves us for something. Namely, for him, to love him, to know him, to glorify him. There's people that just kind of like, well, Jesus is saving me from my sins, and so I'll just do whatever I want. Actually, not only have you been saved from your sins, but you've also been, been saved for him. You literally belong to him. And that's what he's revealing here. You've been, he's the one who will save his people from their sins. And all of this, look at verse 22. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What Matthew is writing and what the angel is proclaiming is that 700 years prior to this day, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And he gave this prophecy, the one that's recorded here. You find it in Isaiah 7:11, And this, the part about God with us is in Isaiah 8:10. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. By the way, if you want a very simple definition of biblical inspiration, it's found right there in verse 22. Spoken by the Lord through the prophet, the word of the Lord coming through a human instrument. And Isaiah said 700 years prior, there is one who is coming. So the world will not miss... This Messiah is coming and he will be born of a virgin and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is so incredibly powerful. And you need to come to understand that the beauty of Christmas is the reality that God literally is with us. And he is through the person of Jesus. And friends, it really comes down to, is Jesus really God? For you to understand how important it is that Jesus is born of a virgin and the implications of that, there's a guy by the name of Larry King. He's a talk show host. I'm sure you've you've heard of him. Um, He was years ago, he was asked this question, if you could select any one person in all of history to interview, who would it be? Ravi Zacharias records this in his book, Questions I Would Like to Ask God, of this interchange where Larry King is asked, of all the people in the world in history, If you could interview anyone you'd want, who would it be? And Larry King said this. He would want to interview Jesus Christ. And the questioner said, well, what exactly would you like to ask him? And this is what Larry King replied. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. When Rabbi Zacharias heard this, he went through a mutual friend. He asked Larry King if he could use what he had just said, uh, and could he quote him? And King replied back through this common friend. Larry King sent word saying this, quote, And tell him I was not being facetious. Friends, it really comes down to this. Is Jesus really God? To show the world that he is, prophecy is fulfilled, and the Messiah comes from one who was born of a virgin. Why is the miraculous conception and virgin birth of Jesus so significant? I want to give you three reasons. One, 
First of all, with God as his father, that means that Jesus did not inherit Adam's sin nature. You see, the sin nature is passed through Adam. Remember that? Romans chapter 5. Through Adam, the sin nature is passed down. But Jesus actually has a heavenly father, and he does not. He is not in the line of Adam, per se, because he has no human father. That means that he can be the spotless lamb, the unblemished sacrifice. He does not have a sin nature. Let me give you another reason why this is so important, that Jesus is virgin-born through this miraculous conception. It means that Jesus is God. That in becoming a human, his perfect life, his sacrificial death are actions that God involved himself personally in the solution to our sin problem. It's not like God's in heaven and said with a loud voice, I love you. Okay? No, God literally steps into humanity. He sends his son, the eternal son, into humanity. He becomes one of us. And this is... This is so powerful, but I want you to grasp this. God is the one who's a God of holiness. He's a God of justice. He establishes right and wrong, and the wages of sin is death. God declares sinners must die. They are separated from me. Judgment must come. But this very same God who is judge and the one who establishes that there is his wrath against sin, this very same God is also Savior, and he enters into humanity, and he does what you and I could never do, and that is pay the penalty for sin. He's perfect. No one else could be because we all inherit this sin nature from Adam. If you want to know why you sin, it's like in your DNA. But not with Jesus. He is the perfect lamb. He is the eternal son of God, fully God, fully man. He alone can address our sin problem. And so he absorbs God's wrath in himself when he dies on the cross. But let me give you a third reason why the miraculous conception and virgin birth is so significant about Jesus. It shows that Jesus is also human. He qualifies as a representative of the human race. He's a mediator before God. You see, he can relate deeply and intimately to what it means to be human. All of our struggles... All of the pain of our life, he himself suffers. He identifies fully with us because he is both fully man and he is fully God. And so because he lived as a man, he fully understands our experiences and our struggles. It's why we we find Jesus to be such a good friend. He knows us intimately. At the same time, because he's God, he has the power and authority to deliver us from sin. He literally represents us and he saves us. He is God, and he is man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Let those words sink in with the deepest effect. You see, the difference in life is his presence, and that's what's being announced to Joseph. So Joseph, having heard this, verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. You see that? But kept her a virgin, meaning they didn't have any sexual relationship, until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. See, what happened here is Joseph follows God. He's righteous. He obeys. That means there's going to be all sorts of slander. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. No one's going to understand. Joseph, 
he understands that pain comes through growth. Maturity comes through walking with God even when people misunderstand and they don't get it. But Joseph responds, and I want you to take full grasp of how Joseph functions. He kind of functions like the great, some of the great saints of the Old Testament, like Noah, who built an ark because God told him to do. And yet, everybody's mocking him like, You're, what are you talking about? Some flood doesn't even rain. I'm building this, and he's going to put his family and all these animals in it. He was a laughingstock, and people tore him up all the time. But he obeyed God. Remember Abraham? God said, I want you to take your only son, and I want you to go up on this hill, and you sacrifice him to, him to me. Remember that? Genesis chapter 22? It didn't make any sense. The promise has got to come through Isaac, and yet uh, he does it. And yet God provides that substitute ram. Do you remember that? But Abraham obeyed God when no one else thought that was reasonable. He trusted him. And so Joseph does as well. He is so convinced who Jesus is that he lives he lives differently. And he has no union with her. That keeps her ritually pure. And it also ensures that Jesus is virgin born. You see that? He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And I don't want you to miss this. He called his name Jesus. He did it. He didn't walk away. He trusted God. Was it difficult? Absolutely. But God supplied. And he is so critical to the story of Jesus. You see, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And knowing that God is with us, friends, that makes all the difference. That is the meaning of Christmas. Knowing that God is with us makes all the difference. Our world could be falling apart, but we have Emmanuel, God with us. A.W. Tozer said that, you know, most Christians are theological Christians. He said they're attempting the impossible. They're trying to be happy without a sense of the presence, his presence. How sad that is. See, the greatest gift that God gives his people is his presence. He's interceding with you. Jesus said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you. I want you to know me as Emmanuel, God with us. In his book, Deserted by God, author and pastor Sinclair Ferguson writes of the first physician to die of AIDS uh, in the United Kingdom. He was a young Christian, this physician. He'd been doing research in Zimbabwe, contracted the AIDS virus, and his body deteriorates. He came to a place and toward the end where he simply had great difficulty even communicating his thoughts. And at one point, he just writes the letter J on a tablet. His wife and different people are kind of going through a medical journal like, okay, J, 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 what, do you, what is this? No. And finally, his wife says, are you, are you saying Jesus? Yes. And for him and his wife. That's all they needed to know. You see, that is all we need to know. The difference is his presence. And the beauty of Christmas is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Lord, only you could do this. Sending the eternal son to be our propitiation and die in our place pay the penalty for sin and live eternally so that we would know you with us and us with you. And for someone who is here today who's never trusted in Jesus, would they right now just pray with me and turn from self and sin and say, Lord, I am trusting your son 
the one who paid for sins. That's why he came. I get it today. And I'm a sinner and I need salvation. So I'm trusting in you. And I'm asking you to be the Lord of my life. 